way we can uh, thank God and be underway. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this week, grateful for these women. We'd ask that you'd lead them on in their lives in a state of growth and blessedness, that they would be offering good things to the saints around them, serving your kingdom. And whoever they're married to or will be married to, we ask that you would be making them a great grace to that. In your son's name, amen. amen. We're on the Tao of Eve tonight, the actual um, discussion of where women stand. We have the uh, men stand with their mojo and what draws we men to you women and what sort of advice those pressures what kind of responses uh, a godly woman should have in those situations once she understands what the mojo is. But it's not the same for you. You do not have a mojo. You have to use your good sense. You, I said yesterday that a woman makes a practical decision. Now a man can make a practical decision. He can make a wise one. He can assess who someone really is and he can uh, assess whether or not the honor coming from her, the openness coming from her is worth pursuing. Um, he could make it, but it's, it's driven in him by the nature of the creation of Eve. Men were not made out of you, only your sons. If you have sons, and a mom's relationship to her sons is special. It's similar in that she gestated them for nine stinking months and then popped them out and wiped their little nose for many years. And uh, it's a closeness. But you didn't come out of a man. Even though all of you were born, you all came out of a mother. So what's the, is it just kind of men get the magic, women get nothing? You know, uh, just another, another uh, second-class citizen uh, situation. Well, uh, thinking about why women love or why women want to get married, um, you, th you think about the curse that is on Eve. I have it here on page 27. So the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet... Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. How much of that is the curse? Is it all a curse? Desiring your husband, him ruling, him then getting you knocked up, then it hurting like the dickens. I was there for all four. Didn't bother me at all. I, uh, Leslie, you know, is a, 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 a good soldier of the family, a pride of the regiment. But uh, she went through something. She uh, squoze four babies out. And uh, uh, now women are big on that. You get anybody in a group together who's had babies, and eventually they will be comparing battle scars. They will be talking about how long the labor, whether they had an episiotomy or not, whether they took drugs, whether they screamed at their husband, whether, um, you know, who knows, whether they did Lamaze breathing. What's the other kind? Bradley. Bradley. May their names be blotted out. And that's our phones, mostly. Um, so you, you say, okay, yeah, we get the curse. Okay, greatly multiplied pain and childbearing. Um, 
that would seem like less reason. You say, yeah, they're cute, men are cute, but you know, if you sleep with them, you get preggers. And then about nine months later, it's a root canal. Okay, it's, it hurts. Why, and why would we want something like that? Now, I have at the top of page 27 a passage from Peter, 1 Peter 3. And we're going to work our way back around to this passage at the end of the lecture tonight. But I want to point something out. I want to go back up and read that. Likewise, you wives. And this is in a section in Peter where Paul has, uh, Peter has, and I have it here on the side. He says, first, be subject to the emperor. Be subject to the governors. Second, slaves be subject to your masters. Then he goes into, for to this you have been called, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And he talks about how Christ existed under the unjust authority, uh, uh, treating him poorly. So, a pagan emperor, honor him. Pagan masters who treat you badly, honor them. Christ, he sets an example. Then he says, top of the page here, likewise you wives, be submissive to your husbands. So that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behavior. Let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of fine clothing, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So once the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are now her children, if you do right, and let nothing terrify you. Likewise, you husbands, live considerately with your wives, bestowing honor on the woman of the weaker sex, since you are joint heirs of the grace of life, in order that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, some things jump out at women, especially women who have been at all schooled in uh, feminism of recent decades. Uh, and most of us schooled in not just feminism, but enlightenment thought, post-enlightenment thought, uh, the egalitarian model of all men, all men and women in this case. Um, and so they see things like submissive, gentle and quiet spirit, reverent and chaste, and you say, what a... Are you trying to turn us into homeschoolers? What's the... Uh, this, this docile, slight, frightened um, woman who goes about as a kind of a throwback and is not going to be any kind of problem. Is this just sort of pa the patriarchy trying to remove women as a problem? The advice is to the women. It's not to the men to try to get their wives to do this. I've said that before. But the gentle and quiet spirit is not suggesting that docility. It's suggesting the example it gives of her um, behavior is that it frees her up from terror. Her state of being in a gentle state and um, quiet is that she is not plagued by terrors. Because at the end it says that, that, uh, that nothing terrifies you. The answer is given in the passage, but it's to keep terrors from happening. And if I go to this place, whatever this place is, I will, I will be freed from that burden. I will be freed from that burden and the peace that this woman has and the reverence and the chastity that this woman has is going to make a big impression. The assumption is this is not a good man. He's not a Christian. 
The masters weren't good. The emperor wasn't good. Christ was the example in a situation where he was, you might say, ill-used by the authorities. So you're basically saying, this is the answer in the worst of circumstances. I'm assuming that you're not going to be in those. I'm assuming that you're going to marry a Christian man, and that you won't need this tactic to get yourself a Christian husband by, without a word, revering and being chased. Now, but we can learn something. So I'm not advising you about this in particular. I'm advising you about the way God has made the world for women so that these things are the powerful things. That's why this section is called the Daughters of Sarah. It says, you are her children. If you do right and let nothing terrify you, the King James, I believe, says, if you do likewise and let nothing terrify you. Now, a few things that need to be definitionally, definitely, well, definitionally, shouldn't have had that glass of wine at dinner. Um, a few things to find. The reverence. Just like the gentle and quiet is the place a woman ends up when she's freed from terror, not when she's, it's not, this is the woman that is frightened to death, or this is the woman who doesn't dare get out of her zone. Um, she is a woman freed from terror, so she's gentle and quiet. The reverence and chaste, we covered chastity uh, a couple nights back when we talked about a, a lady who's chaste. And, and remember how I said that a, a chastity applies to married women and unmarried in that the level of the vow is the level of affection owed or the level of affection allowed. And so when a husband vows his life to you, you owe him. And the chaste, the chaste woman, it is unchaste to not be the sexual partner for your husband. St. Paul advises on that. Your body is not your own, it belongs to your husband. Your husband's body is not his own, it belongs to his wife. Chastity is the correct amount of affection for the vow. But the reverence, people look at that and they automatically have this other thought of going to Wednesday night prayer meeting, church morning and evening, having Bibles lying around the house, always trying to engage your husband who's not a believer in talks about Christianity, and pretty soon he's swearing at heaven and shaking his fist. He hates God for those kind of reverent women. The reverence is not towards God. The reverence is towards the husband. Be submissive to your husband as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now that passage said, where? Where? He said, you know, it's odd. I said, well, I better look that up. The only place Sarah calls Abraham Lord is in the situation at the Oaks of Bamar. I have it on page 28 in the side column. You can look at it. It's where God and two angels show up at the Oaks of Bamar, and they tell Abraham, hey, you're going to have a son next year. He's 100. She's 99. You know, it's, it, she's been through menopause. She hasn't had a child. The child of the promise. And she laughs aside in the tent. Verse 12, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old, and my husband, the word husband there is Lord, my Adonai, is old. She referred to her husband as Lord even in her time of doubting the promise. That's when she referred to him as Lord. That was just the terminology. I don't know if you knew this, but the name Baal, the gods, Baal, that means husband and lord. 
this, either one. But Adonai is being used here as Lord and Husband. And that's where she does. Um, the reverence is to the husband, and consequently the unbelieving husband is moved by this. Chastity for reverence toward. Now, in the combination of these uh, couple passages we looked at, the curse and Peter, in both cases, Old Testament, New Testament, the common thread for women is there's a state of jeopardy. In one, where terrors are created, where threats are felt, be they emotional, financial, physical, uh, spiritual, all sorts of different ways. Different ones for different women, different you know, uh, circumstances. And again, I'm generalizing. It's not the case. I have, a, I have a sister who was a missionary to Egypt and then to Turkey, and she was a tough hombre. She eventually got married in her 30s, but uh, she was tough, and things didn't frighten my sister, and she didn't think she was ever going to get married. Really didn't, never dated, never were interested in guys, never wore makeup, just off to the mission field, make my mom happy. And uh, so I know that there are women who have a very low degree of fear. I know guys with a lot of fear, a lot of insecure men, but what do we think of those men as? Girly men. You know, when a man is frightened, we don't mind when a woman is frightened. Matter of fact, we men stand up and, you know, puff out our chest and our plumage goes out and we feel good about ourselves. We try to fix it. Basically, what you have in the Old and New Covenant, you have the presence of uh, jeopardy. If you said the Tao was something, women are in jeopardy without generally without men. That's why you're the practical ones. You know that there's a jeopardy in your life. You would like to have, thank you, someone standing around with bigger biceps who could move the fridge, who can, who can solve the problem, who you can... Um, and it's not every problem, because sometimes the wife has the, you know, some wisdom the husband needs. It's, again, we're talking in generalities. We're talking about what moves just like a man who wants a woman, he doesn't want a woman every day of his life. Even when he's married to you, he doesn't want you every day of his life. So it's not like you all at all times are all women, but in the main, we're generalizing. There's a jeopardy state, a weakness that is, God has said, well, how do I make the women want the men? I know how I made the men want the women by taking Eve out of Adam. And so he wants her back, the rapprochement quality. The... Um, all he had to do was make the second one have a degree of need for government greater than the need for government greater than the man did. Not an equal need, a greater need. Because that's what the fear is, that's what the insecurities are, is more chaos comes home to a woman and a, 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 another intermediary um, a lord in her life is what she seeks for. That's why women marry up. That's why they're always looking at the guy that's raising walls around their life, and they, they smile when the walls are nice and sturdy. Not to keep them in. It's not like uh, Alcatraz. It's, uh, it's not the, the, the Berlin Wall. It's not keeping people in. It's keeping things out. When you have the right kind of relationship, you're very pleased with your husband for being in that situation 
or that position for you. Now, in I've mentioned in the Tao of Eve the idea, I mean the uh, the way of a lady about the way um, how do you prove these things? You say, uh, Evan, I don't. I'm sitting here and I'm not saying I'm offended, but I'm not feeling what you're saying. Okay, fine. I'm just measuring every inch of female fiction written by women for women selling by the gazillions. Same thing over and over and over again. It's always Fabio on the cover with his shirt half ripped off titled Jasmine Lust. That's the name of the book by some woman, Jennifer, you know, something or other. And it's always, he's got feathers in his hair because he's an Indian, or he's got a Viking helmet on, or he's got a logging cap, I don't know. But he always has his shirt ripped up. And she's always lying on the rocks of the surf, you know, with her bosoms. Um, so it's, uh, you know, what we're dealing with. And those are the, the TNA type of... Uh, um, books. And there's also all the Harlequin romances and all the Jane Austen romances. They can be well written, poorly written. They all say the same thing. What's they the all. DNA? Oh, I just caught it. <laughs> oh, okay, got it. Sorry. I wasn't going to say it. Now that's like questions on the tape. And... <laughs> Too many years in the Navy. Like I said, it's not singly and severally true, but it's sufficiently true, just like you look at the male fiction. Do you want to know how men think? Go out and buy some men books written by men for men that men read. It's Louis L'Amour, it's Alistair MacLean, it's Michael Crichton, it's, uh, I don't know, well, all these others. And there's uh, shoot-em-ups, adventures, fighting over water rights, killing the bad guy, one good-looking girl hanging on their leg, but it's a side plot. She is a side plot. And the romance isn't a side plot in women's romance fiction. It's from the beginning to the end. In the last page of the book, you finally find out he loves her. <laughs> so, it always plays this game. He is the cold, capable, distant, powerful individual who finally realizes that he needs to protect her and does so against his will for a while. And then... Now, you can think about it, you give it some consideration, but a woman's desire is this pragmatic assessment to do something about her, her insecurities or the things that are threatened in her life. If you look at your own sense of love, when you have fallen in love, when you've been in love, you look, think of your husband and loving him, and you say, how will I describe this? How shall I count the ways? And you will speak in honorifics. You will list what he is capable of and what he does for you. Now, he does for you. Now, it's not like a lot of guys are capable. A lot of guys are can do. You don't love them all. But there is a special bond. There's a private, um, it's a private honor you discover. He did it for you. I have watched girls in this house fall in love. I remember one particular girl. It was bittersweet. It didn't work out, but there was a guy in the house. He had a really strong jaw. Really strong jaw. It wasn't really tall, but he had a really strong jaw. 
and really handsome, kind of a Marlon Brando sort of looking guy, young Marlon Brando. And he was sitting down by the fire with this girl, sharing a bottle of wine, talking about things. And I talked to him, I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't you realize you have a strong jaw? <laughs> Women, you know, men look at a woman's body and they project sexuality. Women look at a man's body for images or icons or symbols of his strength. And a strong jaw. Every male model who probably is a homosexual has a strong jaw. He looks like he could secure every woman within a three-block radius. But he's gay. But he looks like he's so handsome. That's the nature of the handsome. We, we, the honor that you, you, you start to feel that this guy is presenting something to you that will secure you. And so when a woman has the door open for her by a guy she just met, her heart goes, oh. Why? A guy, if the girl opened the door for the guy, his heart wouldn't do anything. We'd say, thank you. The woman will say thank you too. But she feels that that was pointed at her. It was for her the door was opened. You see, we were talking the other night in the library afterwards about the, the, the mythology of rescuing the damsel from the dragon. These are standard images in romance ideas. The rescue of the woman from the situation. Now think about that, because it could be that honor and love are close, or they're synonyms. I'm thinking they're synonyms. Private, personal honor for a certain man, and the honor is because you have stood with your knowledge of you, and where the, the, the moment, the circumstance, or your own internal needs was set at a greater degree of ease. He governed it a little. And that government, since you're looking for a Lord, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Those things are tied together. Your desire is going to be rooted. Now, a wife, a woman, she gets married. She's the first citizen of a kingdom. She's the first to call this man Lord. And if you're a daughter of Sarah, you practice that. It sets you free from terrors. It sets you free. Not from all. Men only can do really mundane things. We can move the fridge. We can get the car to the shop, change the dang tire. Um, uh, we can calm a situation, perhaps, if it gets really bad, if the barbarians take over, we might get into a fight. We might die. But it's stuff we do, but it's pretty low. It's not like God. God does wonderful things for you. God secures you in the primary. Women who try to find security in, in, in their husband, like he was God, they put an undue burden on him. He cannot carry it. Put the right mundane burden on a husband. Put the right burden, the great burden, for your soul and your growth and all these other things on God. Trust the city for the, for the traffic and the and uh, your protection from the... I don't... You know, Leslie doesn't expect me to go around well-armed because of the criminal element in Moscow. We trust the police. Someone else takes that authority, takes that government. So a, a woman has to know that which part of her life is she is looking for governance and peace in. 
out of a man. There are women who do not go this direction, who don't uh, they nag, which means that they constantly are reminding him to step up and do the things she thinks ought to be done to make her feel more at peace. There are women that don't nag but just live in a state of private fear, maybe descending to depression because they're just unsecured and they're quiet and so they just fear. There are women who just take over. They usurp the man's role. Don't nag him. They always walk around behind. They claim to be a good Christian wife because they're never in charge. Some of them just take charge. The The modern, and I'm going to get into this in some detail in the rest of this lecture, uh, sort of came home to me many years ago. I've been thinking about this for a lot of years. And, and I want to testify, and you can talk to my lovely wife at any point, she'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, we run our marriage this way, okay? This is not, um, don't we? We do run our marriage this way. Which way? This way. Yes. Yes, I think. I thought you were about to try something. I was, I, but I, I got a little off track. Um, but feel free to talk to Leslie. She'd be you know, happy to testify, and, and uh, we're pretty shallow, so we're easy to understand. Um, I was talking to a woman minister many years ago. She was the wife of an evangelical minister, believer, known her for years. She was pastoring this, whatever years this was, back over in Pullman. And she had heard through the gossip circuit that I was a misogynist. Because I'd say things like this, you know, uh, around. And so she came, made an appointment with me. I believe she made an appointment with my father and my older brother as well. <laughs> because we're all misogynists, and uh, it made the circuit, I think maybe in one day, a little interview was with. And she came to talk to me, I thought it was very nice of her to do so, we had a good conversation sitting in the library here. And so we were talking about different theories or different passages of scripture, I brought up the one in Peter. I said, what do you think of that? I mean, I'm not rebuking you, I just want to know what you do. If you were teaching that passage, what would you do with it? And she said, well, um, I think the term Lord is archaic. I said, yeah, I, you bet. You bet. My wife, we live by this, doesn't call me Lord. If she did, it would be, everybody start laughing, snickle. You know, and, and so that would be it. I said, so, so what term of respect do you use for your husband? One that isn't archaic. What's the non-archaic word usage you have picked to replace it? Well, she didn't have one, because it wasn't that she didn't like archaic words, she didn't like lords. Now, you don't have to. Like I said, at the beginning of this seminar, you could try to run a marriage like egalitarianism was true. You will fail. But it's a free country. You can do what you want. The thing was made by God. Woman was cursed by God. In the fall, we have got this problem, and one of the answers is desiring your husband and his rule. 
One of the advices to those who are redeemed is to reverence your husband, both for evangelism and for a good marriage and to free you from terror. And we also know that all the things that accrue to romance in the culture seem to put this point on the, in the lap of the woman and say, see, that's what makes you feel in love. It's what makes you respond. Now, it's in all sorts of different areas. I have this little graph on page, but it was kind of a graph, um, on page 28. That, those rings of Saturn around that lower one, or three, kind of 3D'd it, was to say, that's <coughs> the wall the man is building up around you. You have strengths and weaknesses in different areas. If you are solid financially and never worried about it, didn't concern yourself with it, didn't ever cross your mind, bills were always paid, it was a big deal, you might not feel any kind of need to be shopping. A guy who has got a big checking account, it's nice to have a lot of money, but you're not, you're not feeling any need there. You're not feeling, oh my gosh, what a relief. He's got real skills and earning potential. Same with spirituality, same with emotions, all the rest. is Where do you stand and where do you look up to? What do you look up to? in a situation. How does a guy that you're meeting in, the, in a social situation, how does he make an impression on the basis of what? For a lot of people, for a lot of women, it's just the social. In others, they, they, it's the pride, the, 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 the alpha male in the herd, you know, the, that a guy stands for it and he's funny and he uh, seems really smart and he, and he seems to handle everybody really well. He seems to be really gracious to the people of the conversation, even though He's eating their lunch, you know, in the argument, and he's still all sorts of good things. And you, you're not really pulling out the financial and the spiritual and the rest. You're just finding out that he is a dominant male, and a kind dominant male, and a gracious dominant male. And he has a girlfriend, so forget about it. Now, that's just the introduction. I wanted to lay the Tao out, what the thing is. A woman because of her jeopardy. Without him, jeopardy has to be dealt with in some way. You still have to deal with jeopardy once you get married. It doesn't fix everything. That's why I said you have to know where God belongs in your relationship, where your husband belongs, where the city belongs, all these different governments. You've just been allowed to pick up one more governor, one more person who's going to pay your bills the rest of your life. One more person who's going to work his hiney off because he cares for you. Because you welcomed him. You gave him access to you. And we will move heaven and earth for that access because it's really important to us. Now this next part, and I'm going to spend the rest of my time on this because it's been what I've been working on for well a number of years actually. But I finally, I finally finished a paper on it. And so it's, it's the rest of the booklet here is this paper that I worked on, so you can read it at your leisure. I'm not going to go through it point by point. It's too long to do that, but you can read it again. Um, but what it is is a, um, is approaching this question as C.S. Lewis approached it. Because some of you are looking at this and going, I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that you think that lordship is romantic and erotic. What? 
Where, did, uh, what do you think? Where are you getting that thinking? Um, and so what I'm going to do, well, first off, when you have a, a problem with lordship, with the submission, when you have a problem there, you, you want to analyze it. You want to say, okay, I, I certainly hope I've, it's not because I'm a modernist. Uh, but I've, uh, when I, I don't want to submit when I don't agree, when it's not what I want, right? Because when it's the same thing, when you and your husband want the same thing, you get to claim it's submission, but it's not. It's only submission if it's not what you want. It's not what you were going to do with your time. It's not what you were going to pick up at the store. You do what he asks, which is extra above and beyond. Whatever the case, it isn't what you were planning. Because if you were planning it, it ain't submission. So if you don't like submission, if you don't like the concept, if you say, well, you know, it's, not, it's not what I want. Why would that, th that you don't want it, why would that have any power as a suggestion? So it's not what you want. You know, when I was in the Navy, I was a sailor, and I was, I spent four years in the Navy, and I got out of the Navy as the lowest sounding rate in the military. Petty officer, third class. Okay, the Navy has a way of insulting. There are ranks below that. Petty officer, third uh, class, and I feel obviously quite important. Um, petty officer, third class. Um, they don't actually ask you how you feel about a direct order. They don't care if you want to do it. They send you to boot camp and they train you. Doesn't matter, not to want what the Navy wants, but to do what you're told. That's what they train you to do. And nobody ever thinks of disobeying a direct order. I mean, they end up in the brig if they do, and I saw what happened to guys in the brig. That's the jail. Um, so, why would the suggestion that you don't want to do you know, so well, I don't like the idea of submission because I don't want to do this some of this thing sometime. Well, so why does that have any power? Because although you think that the idea of a lordship, you've just read the passages, you've read Ephesians 5, you know what it says, you know what the apostles said, you, that's it. If you want to call yourself a Christian, those are the things that are written in your holy book, and those are the things you've got to account for, and you think that you believe in lordship, but Somehow you kind of want to move it off the table, just not pay too much attention to it, especially if Evan's going to leg shackle it to romance and eroticism and say, that's where real romance sits? Well, you better fight the fight now because I'm going to do all sorts of bad things. Well, the reason is you think it's a powerful response is you don't believe in biblical lordship. You say you do. You believe in equality. Because the society has taught you in all your schooling, every commercial, every reading of the Constitution, reading John Locke, whatever you're reading, however depth you have, you believe in equality. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that you do. And when you believe in equality, C.S. Lewis defined in his Preface to Paradise Lost, chapter on hierarchies, he defined tyranny as the rule of equals. Marriage is naturally a government where ruling 
occurs. Biblical ruling occurs with the husband and to the wife, parents to the children. But when you believe you're equal, you always believe the commands are tyrannical, or you will tend to believe the commands are tyrannical. Now, with that in mind, C.S. Lewis, and I, you know I am a, an acolyte of the great man. Um, I serve, I burn incense before a photo of C.S. Lewis. I read his works aloud all through the school year to other people. I'm fat. He wrote a space trilogy. It was science fiction, very early science fiction, in which in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, um, short work, uh, he, the hero, Ransom, gets taken to Mars against his will, and he discovers life on Mars, and he deals with it in bad men. It's an adventure. Second book, Paralandra, he ends up going, being, uh, being sent to Venus to stop the agents of darkness, the followers of Satan, from tempting the first woman on Venus, it's the Adam and Eve story, but on Venus, um, from sinning, from the, the tempter that's going to show up. God is sending Ransom there to keep her from falling. And it's a great story of these two agents, one satanically possessed, Weston, and the other, um, a servant of God, trying to convince the woman not to sin, you know, back and forth. Great story. The third one, that hideous strength. That hideous strength occurs on Earth. And it's, a, it's the longest work, and it is the most gripping, because one, you recognize everything. The women aren't green, for one, and, and uh, um, well, that's a big plus. Um, but what's interesting is you're, you're dealing with all sorts of sins. Uh, uh, there's this uh, institution approved by the government called NICE, National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, and it's backed by Satan, and bad things are happening, you know, and... But the book begins with the word matrimony. Okay? The book has this thread through it, all this other plot stuff going on about the secular materialism and, and uh, various other sins and problems, very exciting. I encourage you to read it. But I wanted, when I went through it many years ago, probably 15 years ago, I was arguing with the drums in the library here, and I said, you know, I just read that hideous strength. The book is all about sex. And they looked at me like, are you an idiot? And they pronounced me an idiot back then. Mm -hmm. But I persisted. And I held on. I had my dreams. And I kept working on the book. And finally, I went through the whole book. I have it on a text file. And I pulled everything out that didn't have to do with relationships. You know, just pushed away all the plot developments, everything, all the characters, just the conversations and the circumstances that dealt with relationships. And it's amazing, this paper. Not the paper is amazing, but the, the, the find was amazing. What it involves is a woman named Jane Studdock. She is a young woman. She is a scholastic woman. She is a uh, writer studying John Donne. She is married. She's not happy in her marriage. She considers herself a serious woman. Let me read this description. I have it as a quote on page 31, at the bottom of the page 31. This is her thinking. <laughs> one had one's own life. One had to live one's own life. Avoid entanglements and interferences had long been one of her first principles. 
even when she had discovered that she was going to marry Mark, her husband, if he asked her, the thought, but I must still keep my own life, had arisen at once and never, had never, for more than a few minutes, at a stretch, been absent from her mind. Some resentment against love itself, and therefore against Mark, for thus invading her life, remained. She was at least very vividly aware how much a woman gives up in getting married. Mark seemed to her insufficiently aware of this. Though she did not formulate it, this fear of being invaded and entangled was the deepest ground of her determination not to have a child. Or not for a long time yet. One had one's own life to live. She's a serious woman. She dresses in serious ways. She wants to be taken seriously. She hates boisterous men laughing about things. Uncles. It's always her old uncles when she was a kid teasing her. That's what she goes back to. She wants to be taken seriously. Now, Lewis suggests that she is, although she's a scholar, she's not, Lewis says, she's not very original. But she's struggling through a section of John Donne out of Love's Alchemy, where Donne says something like this, hope not for mind and women, at their best sweetness and wit they are, but mummy possessed. So she's trying to work through that. It's, it's thematic. It's, it's how she's feeling about things. She's wondering, and she even says this right afterward, did man really want mind in women? So she is, she, the very first word of the page, matrimony, and she's quoted the Book of Common Prayer, she, she has this, um, um, she's processing the nature of her marriage and why she isn't happy in it. Her husband, Mark, is, he's a professor at this small college that they're, uh, he's at, and he doesn't see really the problem. You know, he's a typical guy, just clueless. He's getting himself into all sorts of very, very, he ends up being one of the followers of this very bad dark side thing. And uh, she is the one that thinks she's trying to really fix or remedy her marriage situation, but she's the one who has a problem with it. In the process, she meets, you know, some or has known, a certain uh, Christian couple, Mr. Professor Dimble and his wife, Mrs. Dimble, who you can tell from the name, she's stout. And she's very kind to the younger women around the college, students and, and wives of other professors and the like, and she's very kind to her. Um, and she has been frightened, Jane has been frightened, she started having dreams, very vivid, real dreams, where she knows something's up, like she's seeing prophecies, and she's trying to get help. She thinks she's either going mad or it's frightening her very badly. It's too real. And then she sees somebody from the dream, and it just she starts to, wants to get help. So she talks to Mrs. Dimble about getting help. Mrs. Dimble recommends that she go to St. Anne's on the Hill. St. Anne's on the Hill is an old monastery, nunnery that has been converted to a private home for a bunch of Christians who are living out there. Um, and she suggests that she talk to a woman out there named Mrs. Iron, Miss Ironwood. And so she makes an appointment. Now, I'm, I'm going through the story, uh, trying to follow the narrative as closely as possible, 
because I want you to know, here is a liberated, this is, you know, 1950s, this book was written. Um, she's liberated, she's modern, she's got her own way, she's applying it to her marriage. Her marriage is, is rocky because of this. Her relationship to her husband is not good because of his assumptions about the marriage don't match to her assumptions about the marriage. And there is a, um, a moment where she's really frightened by these dreams. Her husband comes home. She runs to his arms. And uh, it's for, for comfort. And of course, it ends up in sex. And she hates herself in the morning. Because as the phrase is in the book, um, it was too humbling, and when it occurred with her husband, now rarely, it led to sex. Jane, when her fears, fears and stresses drive her to her husband, is deeply angry, in quotes, at being a little woman, in quotes, running to her comfort to male arms, in quotes. Actually, what was happening was real love, real need, real woman, Yes, it ends in sex, just like rapprochement, just like the mojo is measured in sex. Sex is a place of union for the woman for entirely different reasons, but it's also a message of, of, of submission and dominance, and it comforts. And she hated it because it, did, it, it wasn't matching where her head was at. It was only because she had gotten frightened, and she was alone, and finally her husband comes home really late, and she breaks. In her mind, that's an awful thing that just happened. How could, how could I let myself, a sophisticated young woman, get like that? She ends up going to St. Anne's to see this woman. And while she's walking through the garden inside the walls, she's thinking about gardens and Freud's view about gardens being a female's body and the like. And she thinks of a quote. She can't remember where the quote was from, part of a quote. And it, she doesn't realize it's one of her seeings. She is a see her, you know, uh, she doesn't know this. And she gets in, she's in the waiting room waiting to meet this woman, and she's looking at a book on the table, opens it up, and opens to a page with the quote she just thought of out in the garden. The quote is this, it's on page 31 at the top of the page. She got up and opened the one book that lay on the table in the middle of the room. This is the thematic quote. Instantly her eyes lit on the following words, quote, the beauty of the female is the root of joy to the female as well as to the male, and it is no accident that the goddess of love is older and stronger than the god. To desire the desiring of her own beauty is the vanity of Lilith, but to desire the enjoying of her own beauty is the obedience of Eve. And to both it is in the lover that the beloved tastes her own delightfulness, as obedience is the stairway of pleasure, so humility is the, at that moment, the door was suddenly opened. So I think you can presume that the, uh, the humility is the door. Okay? There's the quote. So what was that? There's so many things about that. I don't know. Well, it's the thematic quote of the book. At least of that which affects Jane through the whole book. She follows the process of this quote. Now what's interesting about the quote What's interesting about the quote is that uh, it says things that we don't expect. One, the beauty 
of the female is the root of joy to the female as well as to the male. Now you guys, and I'm grateful, you're decorative, you're fine, you take attention, you pay attention to it, good for you. And Lewis is saying, that's natural. You're as interested in you as we are. You're in love with your beauty. You're not in love with ours. I've seen me without my shirt on. It's unpleasant. Okay? It's a violation of all that is civilized. But my wife's fine. Now, first off, think of it in those terms. It's your beauty sex is about. Your beauty love is about. And he says, that, and his reasoning is, the, the goddess is older than the god. Venus is older than Eros. Venus is older than Cupid. The other thing is this Lilith bit. Lilith, if you don't know, was in Jewish mythology, Adam's first wife. She was bad. Much worse than Eve. <laughs> Eve sinned, but she was probably a pretty nice lady. Lilith in Jewish myth she ends up being a night hag, uh, a demon, uh, but Lilith is used as a, a self-possessed, um, wanting it her own way sort of woman. She did not want to in any way submit to Adam. And so she goes off and marries a demon, Semyaz, I think his name was. Um, but that's not important. But he uses Lilith here in this regard. He said, first off, we're, we're, both, uh, both men and women, the desire is about the woman's beauty. Second, the approach to that beauty, dividing vanity into two things. One is the vanity of Lilith, which is standard vanity that we disapprove of, which is about desiring my, des my desiring. Uh, is to desire, um, to desire the desiring of her own beauty. Women who are vain, in the bad sense, that's what they're about. Women that are the adventurous from day one, that's what they're about. They want their beauty desired. They desire the desiring of their beauty. But the other part where a woman can be about her beauty without it being sinfully vain is the obedience of Eve. The obedience of Eve desires the enjoying of her beauty. Desiring the desiring leaves the woman in command and in charge and she not necessarily going to hand anything out. She's not even going to pay <coughs> up. But she wants to be sure that she is desired. Eve wants to be sure by her obedience that she is enjoyed, that her beauty is enjoyed. It's also um, the third thing here is that it's in the male response to your beauty that um, that the woman finds what her desire delighted. Remember, you desire two different things. Lilith, desire to desire, to be desired, desire to be enjoyed. The woman finds in her man the, the, the delightfulness, what, whichever one she's shooting for. Now, I say this is the central quote, not just because I broke the rest of the book apart, but because Lewis 
in a couple of his letters, it admits this quote isn't out of something. He's, it's out of a book that he found this quote in. He wrote the quote. You know, he, <laughs> and so he puts it in here. And then if you follow the conversation through the rest of the book, you'll find that this is what is being undone in Jane, or being made in Jane, being measured in Jane. Um, now, this... Uh, um, two pages of notes here. Um, she is at full. She she has this meeting with uh, uh, some people there, and she doesn't really meet Ransom, the hero. And uh, she goes home, and she spends the evening with her husband. And it gives this description. And so all evening, the male bird displayed his plumage, and the female played her part and asked questions, and laughed and feigned more interest than she felt. Both were young, and if neither loved very much, each was still anxious to be admired. People will play at this relationship that I'm talking about. Just like the books describe it, you know, romance books describe it, just like um, it can happen negatively when it happened accidentally to her and she found herself sleeping with her own husband out of her humbling of herself in fear. She resented it. But other times, people will mimic it. They will play act the male bird with his plumage, the female bird showing interest in her husband. Neither loved much, but both wanted to be admired. So we, we, there's always this admission in the background against the spirit of the age that says we are, um, we, are we, we know there's something in this. Now, Jane, at this time, also meets another Christian couple, a young couple named Camilla and Arthur Deniston. They are old friends of her husband's. And Camilla is this tall, valiant sort of Christian woman, you know, just a, a can-do sort of broad. And uh, she pictures her in, in, in armor on horseback. That's sort of uh, Jane does. And Arthur's just a, just a great guy. And they're both involved with St. Anne's. And they get together with her on a social occasion, and in the conversation that arises, they ask her, oops, if she comes to St. Anne's, if she moves over to St. Anne's, does her husband know, and has he approved it? She gets ticked. For a moment, she looked on Mr. Deniston with real dislike. She saw him and Mark and the Fisher King man and that preposterous Indian faker simply as men, complacent patriarchal figures making arrangements for women as if women were children or bartering them like cattle. She was very angry. This old-fashioned notion of a woman getting permission from her husband to do something she wanted. Remember, she believed that she had her own life to live, even though she was married. It's sort of like roommates with benefits. You know, that's what husbands and wives were in her mind. And even the benefits weren't there or resented. She calls this old-fashioned, or actually Deniston calls it old-fashioned. Uh, Ransom, uh, their director, has old-fashioned notions. Lewis describes that in his Preface to Paradise Lost. I'm going to read this. This is a quote on page 32. He is lecturing on what the old model is. 
This thought is not peculiar to Milton. It belongs to the ancient Orthodox tradition of European ethics from Aristotle to Johnson himself. And a failure to understand it entails a false criticism not only of Paradise Lost, but of nearly all literature before the Revolutionary period. It may be called the hierarchical conception. According to this conception, degrees of value are objectively present in the universe. Everything except God has some natural superior. Everything except unformed matter has some natural inferior. The goodness, happiness, and dignity of every being consists in obeying its natural superior and ruling its natural inferiors. When it fails in either part of this twofold task, we have disease or monstrosity in the scheme of things until a peccant being is either destroyed or corrected. One or the other it will certainly be, for by stepping out of its place in the system, whether it step up like a rebellious angel or down like an exurious husband, it has made the very nature of things its enemy. It cannot succeed. Interestingly, this book involves both stepping up rebellious angels and stepping down husbands. But this is out of a separate book, his book on literary criticism of, of Paradise Lost. But it's his view of what we're talking with in the book. But whatever the case, although she was very angry with the Denistons, one thing she could not deny is the people that held these views, these old-fashioned views, were really nice. Mrs. Dimble was really nice. Dr. Dimble's really nice. The Denistons were really nice. And she was slowly, in the rest of the book, bad people were coming to town and, and mistreating others. Well, what happens is she finally is going to meet the director of St. Anne's. She hasn't met him yet. She had met Miss Ironwood, who had interviewed her and had insulted her by asking whether her husband knew if she was there. She's finally going to meet Ransom. And while Miss Ironwood is leading her to the door, it says here on page 33, under unmade, Miss Ironwood raised her hand to knock on the door. Jane thought to herself, be careful. Don't get let in for anything. All these long passages and low voices will make a fool of you. If you don't look out, you'll become another of this man's female adorers. The modern does not have a category for adoration. It doesn't have any place where adoration would be right. So how could they, for her to see anybody, they, these people would reverently speak of the director, Ransom. She hadn't met him yet. So she's got this view that Camilla and Miss Ironwood and others um, have this undue reverence because any reverence, any adoration is undue in her mind. Before her eyes had taken it in, she was annoyed and in a way ashamed to see that Miss Ironwood was courtesying. I won't contented in Jane's mind with, I can't, for it had been true in her dream, she couldn't. This is the young lady, sir, said Miss Ironwood. Jane looked, and instantly her world was unmade. Being unmade is crucial. Being, because certain minds, certain ways of thinking, and you might not hold the degree of feminist thought or enlightenment thought that Jane does. She might be a extreme in your mind. But you've picked up some. And you have to ask yourself, what, what, what is, delivers Jane is first, she gets unmade. 
she, she faces up, she meets Ransom, and Ransom has been to the third heaven, like the gentleman in 2 Corinthians 14. Been to the third heaven, and he saw things that could not be uttered. He came back, essentially, he left a sickly, weakly professor of something, philology, in a small college, and he comes back, veritably a god, with a wounded heel. He was hurt in the last fight with the demon-possessed guy on Venus. But he is, he's glorious. And she meets him, and she's undone. We have some things like that. We have, you know how Americans get about the English monarchy. Yeah. We follow the wedding of William and, what's her name, Kate? And uh, then there's Pippa. Whatever. Middleton. Oh, she's, she's cute, too. And then the, and then the uh, well, we were talking to somebody from El Centro, where Leslie's from, and the prince was down there doing maneuvers out at the base I used to be stationed on. It's said, in the valley was just thrilled. The prince is within breathing distance. I may have breathed the same air the prince had breathed. <laughs> prince Andrew, that's name? Henry, Hank, right? Harry. 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 Prince Harry. <laughs> prince William the King, the, going to be Prince of Wales. You're so devoted, honey. <laughs> and I have stood outside Buckingham Palace and, and breathed, and yes, the queen. God bless her. We're Americans, we don't have a queen. But that latent memory of something above to which your majesty is the appropriate response, where you'd be wrong to just go, hey, hi, good to meet you. No, it's, yes, your majesty. Now, we have that in our background. Jane has it in hers, and when she sees Ransom, she had, or so she believed, disliked bearded faces except for old men with white hair. But that was because she had long since forgotten the imagined Arthur of her childhood and the imagined Solomon, too. Solomon, for the first time in many years, the bright solar blend of king, lover, and magician, which hangs about that name, stole back upon her mind. For the first time in all those years, she tasted the word king itself with all linked associations of battle, marriage, priesthood, mercy, and power that moment, as her eyes first rested on his face, Jane forgot who she was and where, and her faint grudge against Grace Ironwood, and her more obscure grudge against Mark, and her childhood and her father's house. It was, of course, only for a flash. But her world was unmade. She knew that anything might happen now. This being unmade, makes her, you might say, open without defenses. Um, she starts to have conversation with Ransom, series of conversations, in which um, he also brings up getting her husband's permission. <laughs> you know, it's, and it just keeps coming back up. Because, because they believe in the authority of things, they keep coming back to that. She really is married. She really should have her husband's permission. And he's serving the dark side. But she has realized, because she has met a lord, she doesn't think of her husband as a lord. Remember, we're trying to go where Sarah has asked us to go and try to understand what that's rooted in. 
And Jane's progress helps you find the root. It is not you starting to pretend that men are more important. That's not how it happens. That's how it happens. It's not... Sometimes a woman like Abigail was was married to a fool. You get there in a different, on a different, a different track. But first, she has met Ransom, and he's going to send her. He's decided whether or not she can stay at Saint Anne's. And her natural obedience, or her her feeling, the Solomonic feeling she has about Ransom, affects her so much that she has become slightly happy. In other words, pleasure. Remember the promise that obedience is a stairway of pleasure? She's starting to feel it. And she was frightened before and worried, and she tries to tell him on page 34, I'm so unhappy. And he says, are you unhappy now? And she has to say, no. She's worried that if she... So if she has to go back, it'll be worse. He says, will it? And she says, no, I suppose not. And for a little time, Jane was hardly conscious of anything but peace and well-being, the comfort of her own body in the chair where she sat and the sort of clear beauty in the colors and the proportions of the room. Well, they continue having to. She's being slowly improved by her encounter with the Lord. Okay? Not her Lord at this moment, because she's just a visitor to St. Anne's, and it's not her husband, it's not God, it's just Ransom. But he's a Lord, and that's clear. He's having conversations with him, and she brings up about how she might have different opinions about marriage than these masters of his that he keeps talking about. So she brings up the old-fashioned remark that Deniston made, and he says that was a joke. But when he tells her it's a joke, he lets her know that they don't really care what your ideas of marriage are about. You know, if you have different ideas about marriage, they would never think of asking what you or your ideas were of marriage. Marriage is something you did not create. God made marriage. By doing that, when we look at old-fashioned notions like this is sometimes called, or people say, oh, how medieval, say, hold it, if this is true, if the lords are there, if the masters are there, it's not was true, it's old, and it's current. The masters are still there. So, where does she go from here? Um, she's been wanting to have someone fix the problem that she's going through. Um, she ends up being the problem. You know, the problems with the dreams and what's happening and the rift in her marriage and why she doesn't get understood by Mark and why back and forth, back and forth. But turning out, she's, every conversation comes back to the way she thinks. What happens is when you try to have equality in a relationship that is designed for lordship, it creates distance. And this separation, it just causes that, just even emotionally in the same house. I don't know if you knew this about marriage. Marriage is supposed to marry you. Okay? Think of it in those terms, a pretty direct, 
Marriage is supposed to marry you. The husband's government, however mundane and paper-crowned it may be, is to achieve a marrying with this woman. It's going to be on all sorts of different levels. That's why it's erotic, and it's, it's trying to have a, a glue that pulls it together. And something like, no, but I have my own life, but uh, no, but I have my own life to live, and, I, and I, I need to stay myself and serve myself, and equality first, well, marrying doesn't happen. And when you start to separate inside the marriage, you'll eventually start making excuses for actually separating, because the fight over who's in charge here, if it was naturally this is the person in charge and that person is not in charge, and you say, no, no, we're both in charge, and the husband agrees to so it. I counseled a man a few a number of years ago. His wife was, oh my gosh, difficult. She wanted it her way all the time, and her idea of 50-50 in the relationship was her, type, her way all the time. That was her idea. And I said, do you ever think of making it to the husband? Do you ever think of making a decision and sticking to it and saying, hey, because she'd move them around the country, but, you know, change her jobs, all sorts of things. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I went into marriage agreeing that it was going to be 50-50. That was the deal. That's what he agreed to. It was tragic. He's still following her. Now, what happens, again, it either destroys the marriage or it creates great separations and annoyances within it. So she's wondering about whether her marriage was a mistake. And that mistake, um, that mistake, she wants to know whether or not, well, could we do anything about that? Because that's what where people get. They get into separation, they get into distance, uh, they start thinking differently. Well, maybe we shouldn't have gotten married in the first place. Let's get a divorce. So he's asking Ransom about that, and he says, I'll tell you if you really want to know. So the director, this is on page 35, please, said Jane reluctantly. They would say, speaking of his masters, he's meaning by them the gods, he answered, that you do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. And see, Ransom is the hero of the three books. He is the mouthpiece of C.S. Lewis's viewpoint. It's quarter tell. Um, and he's saying, we are waiting for love to make us want to obey, rather than saying obedience makes the love. What I was saying earlier, with the idea of lordship, Romance and the erotic are tied together, causality-wise. And the lordship is the causal. Not the love is causal, not the desire is causal, but the lordship is causal. Now what's, what's bizarre at this point, remember she is... The only person she's walked into on and she's just unmade by just being in Ransom's presence. He is that intelligent, powerful, real. As a Lord. The truth of the great quote of mystery is true even when it ought not to be. Something in Jane 
that would normally have reacted to such a remark with anger or laughter was banished by to a remote distance where she could still but only just hear its voice by the fact that the word obedience, but certainly not obedience to Mark, came over her in that room, in that presence, like a strange oriental perfume, perilous, seductive, and ambiguous. Stop it, said the director sharply. That's one of the greatest lines in literature. Stop it. She was getting the hots for ransom because she was undeniably a lord. And undeniably, she was feeling herself willing, just the word obedience. She was thinking, King Arthur, Solomon, this guy. I'm sure I'm a liberated female, and when I think of my husband, none of that comes on, but when I think of this guy, when lordship is undeniable, when it's carrying the power of that rule, and that rule to you is benevolent, that rule to you is doing you a good, it's seductive. And Ransom has to go, knock it off. What do you think you're thinking? It just it clears the air. It just she, Jane stared at him, open mouth. There was a few moments of silence during which the exotic fragrance faded away. You were saying, my dear, resumed the director. He knew what was going on. Well, she, continuing to discuss it, wants to argue the issue of equality. And in this section, on top of page 36, and I am going to need to hurry up a little bit because I know I'm dragging, and I apologize. She raises the issue of equality as if that was a trump card and automatically true. You know, everybody knows we're all equal, right? Uh, equality, said the director. We must talk of that some other time. Yes, we must all be guarded by equal rights from one another's greed because we have fallen, just as we must all wear clothes for the same reason. But the naked body should be there underneath the clothes, ripening for the day when we shall need them no longer. Equality is not the deepest thing, you know. I always thought that's just what it was. I thought it was in their souls that people were equal. You were mistaken, he said gravely. That is the last place where they are equal. Equality before the law, equality of incomes, that's all very well. Equality guards life. It doesn't make it. It is a medicine, not food. You might as well try to warm yourself with a blue book. But surely in marriage, worse and worse, said the director, courtship knows nothing of it, nor does fruition. Fruition is, and he's using it here in terms of sexual pleasure. Courtship knows nothing of it, nor does fruition. What has free companionship to do with that? Those who are enjoying something or suffering something together are companions. Those who would enjoy or suffer one another are not. Do you not know how bashful friendship is? Friends, comrades, do not look at each other. Friendship would be a shame. I thought, said Jane, and stopped. I see, said the director. It's not your fault. They never warned you. No one has ever told you that obedience, humility, is an erotic necessity. You are putting equality just where it ought not be. Great, great section. We take equality that we bring up because of our political views and we want to have equality before the law and a trial of your 12 men of your 12 peers and, and presumed innocent till proven guilty and all sorts of things that no matter what, no matter how poor you are, no matter how great you are, intelligent, stupid, you all get 
Consider the same. One man, one vote. And then we take all those political ideas and we bring them over to situations where they don't belong. Why? Ransom, Lewis, says that's not uh, what's going to make those things powerfully enjoyable. Because courtship and sex have nothing to do with equality. And in fact, to get the best sex, obedience, and humility. She is sent home. She's not allowed to stay. On the way home, because of this moment, because of what she's been through with Ransom, her, she's changed. Not completely, but she's changed. She was unmade, and she's being remade some other way. There's four Janes that she recognizes on the train. One is infatuated with Ransom. Second Jane, disgusted at the infatuated Jane. Third Jane is confused because she's got the hots for the director. She's infatuated with the director. He's disposing her to her husband. She's wondering what the morality of this is. And the last Jane is just joyful in her beauty and the beautiful everything in her world. Says of the last, the other three had no power upon her. She was in the sphere of Jove. Mid light and music and festal pomp, brimmed with life and radiant in health, jocund and glowed in shining garments. She thought scarcely at all of the curious sensations which had immediately preceded the director's dismissal of her and made that dismissal almost a relief. When she tried to, it immediately led her thoughts back to the director himself. Whatever she tried to think of led back to the director himself and in him to joy. Her submission and her obedience to the director, true to the promise of the great quote of mystery, was giving her pleasure. And she sits on the train and she has these experiences. She starts looking at the bunnies and the fields and the horses and talking to this old guy and thinking about music and um, um, uh, listening to Bach and, and uh, uh, reading Shakespeare and eating buttered toast, and those were all mentioned. And she says, life is just you know, suddenly rich and beautiful because of this obedience, this very singular, small one, obedience. And she becomes vividly aware of her beauty. She rejoiced also, page 37, in the consciousness of her own beauty, for she had the sensation, it may have been false in fact, but it had nothing to do with vanity that it was growing and expanding like a magic flower with every minute that passed. In such a move, it was only natural, after the old countryman had got out of Keir Hardy, to stand up and look at herself in the mirror with the f that confronted her on the wall of the compartment. Certainly she was looking well. She was looking unusually well. And once more, there was little vanity in this, for beauty was made for others. Her beauty belonged to the director. It belonged to him so completely that he could decide not to keep it for himself, but in order that it be given to another by an act of obedience lower and therefore higher, more unconditional and therefore more delighting than if he had demanded it for himself. Her infatuation with Ransom, it was so confusing, was so completely in line with the great quote that it was, that it was opening all sorts of doors, not just to pleasure, but... Um, it belonged to him. Remember, the obedience of Eve is the desire, the enjoying of her beauty. 
Her beauty belonged. The scriptures talk about this. A wife's body is not her own, but her husband's. A husband's body is not his own, but his wife's. This is how she's getting here this way. Now, you're considering this. Remember, you're not just saying, well, it's in a novel, for heaven's sake. It's just fiction. These aren't real people. It didn't really happen. You're getting Lewis's view of things. You can say, well, who's C.S. Lewis? He's dead. He was an Anglican, for heaven's sake. Um, and an Irishman. What are you, you going to do? Um, you, can, you can blow it all off. I, but I want you to think about it. I want you to go through and read this article again. I want you to read the book with this knowledge in your head to see it happening in the midst of the plot. A new world arrives for Jane because bad things start happening. The police, the bad guys police pick her up and start to torture her and she escapes and, and she gets back to St. Anne's on the Hill and she has to stay there because they were trying to hurt her. And he asks her directly. Now what he's not trying to do is he's not trying to reintroduce her to her husband and get he's at the bad place and, and try to put their marriage back together. He expects that's a collateral benefit. The thing he wants is to get her obedience and to move her obedience further up. On page 37 it says, Do you place yourself in the obedience, said the director, in obedience to Maladil? Maladil is the name for God in the book. Sir, said Jane, I know nothing of Maladil, but I place myself in obedience to you. It is enough for the present, said the director. This is the courtesy of deep heaven that when you mean well, he always takes you to have meant better than you knew. It will not be enough for always. He is very jealous. He will have you for no one but himself in the end. But for tonight, it is enough. Now, she starts to realize, the reason I'm pointing this out, so I can just cut to the chase, did their marriage work out? What happened? Is it, has she learned enough? No, she has not learned enough. A woman can find all sorts of sub-authorities that get her excited different than her husband. That would just be bad if she was getting excited by this religious leader in a compound someplace. It sounds like a cult. Um, and, but but th this is, he's saying, I'm going to have to get you, you're going to have to submit yourself to God eventually. Um, and what she's realizing, and what you need to realize if you were going to go this way, this is this is why it's, it's important. If you're going to go this way, you cannot just get religion. You have got to have the kind of experiences with your religion that's like she had with Ransom, being unmade, and meeting God in such a way. She starts to think about the difference between what she sees in this Malel bill and religion before, and what it was at the bottom of seven. Things belonged to, for her to different worlds. On the one hand, the terror of dreams, rapture of obedience, the tingling light and sound from under the director's door, because the gods visited him. And the great struggle against an intimate, intimate, intimate danger. On the other, the smell of pews, horrible lithographs of the Savior, apparently seven feet high, with the face of a consumptive girl, the embarrassment of confirmation classes, the nervous affability of clergymen. The world just turned out different. She had these two worlds. There was the religious world, the church world, and then what religion, what gods were, what the gods really were. So she has this breaking down of her defense against God. And she has this vision 
In the midst of preparing with the other ladies there at St. Anne's, this lodge, this cabin on the property, because one of the women's husbands getting let out of jail or supposed to be, and he's going to have a, you know, kind of a reunion night with his wife, Ivy. She's kind of low class. Very nice girl. But uh, they're working on it and making the beds and so forth. And all the women are joking, kind of body jokes. And Jane's going, okay, what's going on? These are, these are religious Christian women, and they're kind of not telling dirty stories, but they're referring to things. She describes it as, um, at every moment she seemed to join hands with some solemn yet roguish company of busy old women who've been tucking young lovers into bed since the world began with an incongruous mixture of nods and winks and blessings and tears, while impossible old women in ruffs or wimples who would be making Shakespearean jokes about cod pieces and cuckoldry in one moment and kneeling devoutly at altars the next. And she was supposed to be the moderate, and here the Christian women were the ones who had this nitty-gritty real relationship with sexuality. She falls asleep in the cabin, and... Um, She falls asleep in the cabin, and she has a vision. And the vision is of this big, beautiful, sexy woman who doesn't keep her blouse buttoned. We'll just put it that way. Okay? She's got big eyes like a cow, big red lips, and she's copper-colored. And, and welcoming. Tracks of land. Huge tracks of land. <laughs> and... Um, and she's, she's got all these little dwarves, little annoying dwarves around, little guys, little chubby gnomes, insufferably familiar, frivolous, and irrepressible. And they're running around the lodge, lighting everything on fire with kind of an organic fire. It was a fire, but it turned into plants. And, and she's having this vision. Remember, she's a, a prophetess of sorts. And uh, she's indignant about this behavior. We goes to, she, after it's all over, she goes to talk to Ransom about it. And he basically said, that is probably the goddess Venus. And she's the earthly wraith of the heavenly Venus. And she's what you would expect without the Christianizing influence. Mrs. Dimble is Venus with Christ. That Venus you saw is what the pagan Venus is, and she's brutal. But she's also more real than you are. You're nothing. The pagans and the Christians have got something. You've got nothing. You can't even be pagan, and you can't be Christian. And she basically came to the conclusion that Ransom was in somehow good diplomatic relations with these, these really weird, not just weird, but powerful, sensual elements. So she starts thinking about her spirituality, and... Uh, uh, one of her problems, as she's dealing with God here, is she's always thought of spirituality as nirvana-like and gaseous and, and equal and pure Athenian democracy. <laughs> Everything right with the world. Um, and not realizing that marriage, earthly, nitty-gritty, sleep with each other, dominant male, submissive wife, condition, just like St. Paul says, I believe it has to do with Christ and the church that marriage is the pattern of all things. That the universe is always going up 
a more masculine step every time you move up the hierarchy. And he Ransom corrects her, and he says, on page 40, but your trouble has been what old poets call dongiere. We call it pride. You are offended by the masculine itself. The loud, eruptive, possessive thing, the gold lion, the bearded bull, which breaks through hedges and scatters the little kin kingdom of your primness as the dwarves scatter the carefully made bed. Those little irrepressible, annoying dwarves, those were symbols of men ruining your life. And that's what we do. We leave things on the floor. We leave the toilet seat up. <laughs> that's what we do. We're the bearded bull, the golden lion. And he says, the male, you could have escaped, for it exists only on the biological level, but the masculine, none of us can escape. What is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we are all feminine in relation to it. You had better agree with your adversary quickly. She says, you mean I shall have to become a Christian? He says, it looks like it. That's what this is all about. We find that not only is the marriage bed and love the erotic, the romantic, built on this lordship thing, but true Christianity, Christianity as you ought to encounter it, where you bow the knee, men and women, all of us, Ransom, Jane, Mark, everybody has to bow the knee to Christ because we're all feminine relationship to it. There was an idea that you're beginning to realize that the masculine, by definition, is dominant and reaches down to control to bless, to make, to mend, destroy. It is doing something downhill. It governs downhill. And that's what you realize. And people don't want that. They, they really would rather have the Nirvana-like moment. Um, and uh, that's something that um, she is finally coming to grips with. That this was something, as it says in 41, 41, top of the page, supposing everyone, supposing one were a thing after all, a thing designed and invented by someone else and valued for qualities quite different from what one had decided to regard as one's true self. Supposing all those people who, from the bachelor uncles down to Mark and Mother Dimble, had infuriatingly found her sweet and fresh when she wanted them to find her also interesting and important had all along been simply right and perceived the sort of thing she was. Suppose Maladil, on this subject, agreed with them and not with her. For one moment she had a ridiculous and scorching vision of a world in which God himself would never understand, never take her with full seriousness. She ends up in the book submitting to God at that point. It's a great conversion moment. I didn't want to include it in the story because it it didn't really play off the thought, but it's a wonderful story of a moment of her conversion. The gods descend at that point in the story on St. Anne's. There is a big fight. The gods are going to pass power to Merlin. Merlin showed up in the story. Won't go to that. And, uh, and so other stuff happens that you have to read a book to find out what it is. But at the end of the book, Jane... The bad guys have been destroyed. Ransom is going to go to back to Venus. Venus, the goddess, is going to take him with her. And uh, he's not going to be in pain anymore. And he's going to be delivered. 
and he decides to send, he, they've rescued, without her knowing it, Merlin has rescued her husband from the bad guys and sent him, led him, the things, things have led him to that lodge that she had prepared with the other women for Ivy Mags and her husband. She says, yes, your husband is waiting for you in the lodge. It was your own marriage chamber that you prepared, should you not go to him, this ransom speaking. Must I go now? If you leave the decision with me, it is now that I would send you. Then I will go, sir, but, but am I a bear or a hedgehog? And I point out that in all of this, all these animals were released from the zoo and, and they all end up, frankly, copulating in the garden at St. Anne's because Venus is really close to the earth and everything's doing it. Very, very, a lot of propriety, but there's a lot of uh, sexual heat in the situation. So he's being, she said, am I, am I a bear or a hedgehog? He says, more, but not less. Go in obedience and you will find love. You will have no more dreams. Have children instead. So she obeys, and in the last scene of the book, remember the first word of the book is matrimony. And it's a scene of her thinking about her marriage and what's wrong with it. Why do I have to put up with this nonsense? The last scene of the book, this is the last scene right here on the page, is her walking across the yards of the monastery down to the lodge, and it was interesting as I thought of that, I said, you know, the stairway, I would always say the stairway up to pleasure from the great quote of mystery, may mean down, because it's humbling. The idea of lordship, the increase of pleasure with the, the greatness of the humility. She walks down thinking about her um, husband. And now she was half halfway down the quote, it said, she thought of children and of pain and death and how she was halfway to the lodge and thought of Mark and of all his sufferings. When she came to the lodge, she was surprised to see it all dark and the door shut. And as she stood at the door with one hand on the latch, a new thought came to her. How if Mark did not want her, not tonight, nor in that way, nor any time, nor in any way? How if Mark were not there after all? A great gap of relief or of disappointment, no one could say, was made in her mind by this thought. Still, she did not move the latch. Then she noticed that the window... The bedroom window was open. Clothes were piled on a chair inside the room so carelessly that they lay over the sill. The sleeve of a shirt, Mark's shirt, even hung down on the outside wall. In all this damp, too. How exactly like Mark. Obviously, it was high time she went in. <laughs> men still be a man. But she's humbled herself, and she's going to her husband in peace, free of terror. It's... I, I came up with this idea called the Law of Lords. I wanted to put it together that all lords and all relationship to lords are understood by this. A lord is raised to make that peace which those who are below must kneel to enjoy. Okay, that's there in the next paragraph. You don't have to write it down. A lord is raised to make that peace which those who are below must kneel to enjoy. That's us and God. That's us in the government, that's us in husbands, us in parents, us in masters, whatever it is, that's true. Now, as you think about considering this, the wonderful things, the good things, are your beauty becomes something you really rejoice in. Because that's what it's supposed to be done with it, you know, that, 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 but not in a vain way. You know how it came up? Not in vanity, just 
wonderful. It's a satisfaction to you and your husband. We're more than hedgehogs, but God has made a very pleasant metaphor and lesson and government for us to enjoy down here at the bottom. It's, it's a great way for us, you know, people in the cheap seats in the creation, to find our way with a companion, sexual pleasure, the joy of it all. But this is the relationship. Now, I want you then to think back, lastly, about that quote out of Peter. After hearing, and I, again, read through it again, deal with what it is to have a Lord. Not whether or not you're willing to call a man a Lord, whether you could go through the process. Does the problems in marriages stem from misunderstanding the cosmos? That's what Lewis is saying. You don't understand the cosmos. You think John Locke was right. You think John Locke had it all figured. The human enlightenment had it figured. Is the cosmos at odds with your marriage, future marriage, current marriage? Is C.S. Lewis's view of the cosmos better than yours? What, would your marriage gain anything if you destroy egalitarianism in it? Is that law of lords even true? I mean, these are all things I want you to think about because I don't want you to think in any way because I'm standing up and you're sitting down and I'm the one who talked for the last hour and a half, hour and 40. So read that passage in Peter again and then ask yourself, where would I go? How would I approach this to be unmade? If I know I have this problem, I have it, my back gets up at it or, or I want this help, where would I go to get unmade and where would I go to get remade? Your future sex life, your future happiness of your husband, your future happiness of you in your marriage rests on it because it's the thing that deals with a woman's, the center of a woman's love. This is all the, you might say, all the, the narrative that's behind that idea of a Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord and you are her children. If you do right, then let nothing terrify you. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful. Keep us honest and keep us thinking about these things, asking you, your spirit, and your word um, how much of this is on point. Lord, you know, we know you want us happy, that we're to enjoy the wife whom we love all the vain days of our life. We'd ask that you bring joy to each of these people here, pleasure satisfaction, right thinking, that they may prove your will. In your son's name, oh, and bless the dessert. In your son's name, amen. Mm -hmm.